The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, we sing a, or hear sung a song this morning about you doing great things in a city. And I imagine that many of our minds cannot help but run to Port-au-Prince and wonder what you are doing in that city. We give you great thanks for sparing many, including Jean, part of our congregation who is Haitian, You've spared him, but we don't know about his family. And so we pray, would you protect them? We thank you for the stories we hear about people who have lived through remarkable, astounding things. And we thank you carefully because your will is always good. We carefully thank you for your decision not to spare all. We don't understand it, but we will not stand and shake our fists at you. You are God. You're in charge of all life. Your ways are are higher than ours, and we don't know all that you're up to, but we plead with you now that you would do great things in that city. Even people on the news talk about how this could be an opportunity for centuries of misery in that country and that city to be changed. Even secular people on the news talk about that. And we who know you and, and know hope in you, we know that this could be a time when you would do remarkable things, not just to change society there and government there, but to change the spiritual climate of that dark land. I don't know much about the church there, but I'm sure there is one because there's a church in every nation. Would you put your hand on your people in Haiti, Haitians in Haiti who know you, Would you give them great strength? Would you give them hearts that while surely sorrowing also can rejoice? And would you cause people to look at them in wonder and wonder about the hope that is within them? Only you can do that in the hearts of people who Look around at a city devastated and can sorrow but rejoice. And so would you do that, Lord, in your church there? And for your church that exists outside of the country of Haiti, would you mobilize it and make this a fine hour for the name of Christ? Lord, there has been much instantaneous reaction, but probably what's most important once initial needs are met, is, is what happens in the months ahead. And I pray that you would give the church staying power 
perseverance and wisdom as to what to do next year in Haiti and and the year after that in Haiti. We'll give wisdom to our our own denomination, a relatively small denomination, our, our church, a small church, us individually. Give wisdom to us as to what we should do and how we should pray and what we should give to. And I pray, Lord, that 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 song this morning would be true of that city and that nation and that there would be many great things that you intend to do today and tomorrow there. Have mercy on them. Have eternal mercy. Call people to faith because of this. Save people eternally, we pray. And Lord, as we turn to our text that is before us this morning, would you open it to us and make clear your will from it? Help us to understand what in this ancient text speaks to us in our modern day. Make clear my words, make clear my friend's thinking here. Show us Yourself and and give guidance to us. And Lord, particularly I pray that what would result from this passage would be a, a heightened concern in each one of us to be a people of righteousness and justice, to be holy, to be pure like You are. Lord, grow that in us. Emphasize that in in our minds this morning. Underline it so that we don't miss it and skip on and and just assume it, but not examine our lives in relation to it. Bring that truth out this morning from Your Word, I pray. Be in this room. Move on our hearts for the honor of Christ and for the growth of Your church, I pray this. In His name, Amen. We turn our attention this morning to a new section of the book of Deuteronomy. As we do so, perhaps it will be helpful to remember the, briefly the, the bigger picture of what's going on here in this sermon, the sermon that is Deuteronomy. The whole thing is, is a great big speech that happened on one afternoon as the people of Israel are poised on the Jordan River banks, ready to cross over and, and take possession of the land. They're just about to go over, but Moses is not going with them. He's going to die before they cross over into the promised land. And so this is his final sermon, his final exhortation and instruction to them, a reminder of where they've come from and what they have to do as they move into the land in order to experience God's blessing and retain the land. And the section that we're moving into now, in this section, Moses is addressing and kind of laying out what we might call leadership structure. Government institutions. It might not sound very exciting to us, but there is something here for us to understand, even though we're not a nation and we're not building a country here. He's touching on this again. He he mentioned it briefly back in chapter 1. He's now going to go into some more detail over the next couple chapters. He's going to lay out how they are to interact with and establish offices this morning of judges, which is going to include priests, then after that kings, and after that prophets. Offices, a structure to run a country. 
And he's giving that to them because up to this point in history, most of all of that has been tied to Moses himself. A little bit of help from other people, but he's kind of been the man. He's been all of that. Judge and priest and prophet and king. He's been, he's been most of all of that centralized in him. But now he's going to die and all of that is going to be decentralized, spread out to a bunch of different people. And all of those lines of authority and responsibility are going to be dispersed until one day there's going to be another great prophet, priest, and king who's going to come and reunite them. That's in the future. This morning he's splitting them up. And what we get today is his setup of a structure by which God's law, remember his Torah, his instruction, a structure by which his law can be administered in the land, kind of pressed into the people and lived out fairly over all of the, the country. Now, we are not setting up a state. This is our launch of, of a new country. So in some ways, and they are, so in some ways there are some important differences here. We have to recognize that since Messiah has come, we live post-Messiah, since he has come, the nature of the covenant community, I've said this before, but I'm reminding you, the nature of the, of the people of God has changed. Back in that time, it was ethnically and geographically and politically defined. A certain ethnic people, Jews, who lived in a place and were under one government. Now that Messiah has come, the people of God have, have broken out of those bounds and cover every nation on the earth and live under all kinds of civil governments by God's design. Romans 13 tells us that he's given civil governmental authority to kings and rulers in all kinds of lands, and we are responsible to them. So we're not, we're not trying to set up a way to run our country. This isn't the Constitution of the United States here. So the civil law that we read about here is not directly applicable to us. However, there is much for us to learn in it. Because God's civil law comes from his moral law. Comes from his own character. And so we look at it and we say, what's the, what's the character of God that's showing in this? That's what we need to grab a hold of. That's what's directly applicable to us because it never changes. The character of God never changes. And we learned that as we look at the civil law, the code of the nation of Israel, like a section this morning where he establishes a system for administering the law. So we're going to wrestle with this tension again this morning of, of the moral and the civil and, and figure out what do we learn from this that applies to us today. We're going, let me read the, the text, Deuteronomy chapter 16, beginning in verse 18 through chapter 17, verse 13. 1618, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice. And only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. 
You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you, within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden. And it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the, to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. The word of the Lord. The passage has three main sections. It is two at the, at the front and the end that are mostly instruction, and one section in the middle that is mostly illustration or case study. To use modern terms, what we have here is the setting up of the judiciary branch. He's appointing judges and courts and a court of appeals and, and issuing rules for how witnesses work, how penalties are to be exacted. This is the, the court system of Israel being set up. A sketch of how violations and accusations are to be handled. And then in the middle, that middle section of illustration pulls out what would be the most serious of all violations. A breaking of the covenant by breaking the first commandment. So this would be the most difficult of all possible cases and shows, in brief, how one would handle that within this system. But first, the system gets set up. Verse 18. The people are addressed as a singular entity. It's you referring to all of you as a unit. So this is not a single person from on high who is declaring and appointing people. It is the people themselves who are called to select judges and officers. So this comes from among the people. And officers would be responsible for assorted 
menial work probably of the courts, like recording facts and investigating things, but the judges are the ones who actually decide the case. And they were to be appointed by people in every city, literally in every gate, which is where the elders of a city would sit. They would sit in the gate to do the city's business, and because the court also meets there in the gate, it's probable that some of the elders would be kind of set aside particularly to be judges. And they would be, as you read the requirements that follow, they would have to be wise people, men who knew the law well, who were mature, who were good, unbiased. They were selected to judge the people with righteous judgment, end of verse 18. And then that is heavily underlined in 19 and 20 with the terms righteous and justice being repeated several times. They are to be righteous, to give righteous judgment, to not suppress the cause of the righteous, to not pervert justice, but emphasize in verse 20, justice, justice you shall follow. Repeated twice, just to be clear. Justice. That's the goal, righteous judgment and justice. Nothing that's tainted by any kind of bias, especially bribery is underlined there. It blinds the eyes of the wise. No bias. Righteousness and justice is to be carried out by these judges. According to what standard? Obviously, he's speaking in a context here. And from God's perspective, righteousness and judgment is according to God. Not society. Which is important to say today because... In our world, there's all kinds of silliness and sometimes wickedness that goes around under the guise of justice. Or, this is, of course, just right that we do this, isn't it? Because a million people can't be wrong, can they? Yeah, they can. We don't define righteousness and justice by society standards. God defines righteousness and justice by His standard. It's according to His Word. These judges were to judge righteously and justly according to God's word, which is how the priests get involved in this later, in the final section, verses 8 to 13 of the next chapter. If the local judges are sitting and evaluating an issue and they're confused about it and it's a little bit difficult to discern what part of God's word applies here, is is this this kind of a death or this kind of a death? Is it this kind of an assault or this kind of an assault? You see, they're sifting through the word, trying to figure out the facts match which section. And it's too difficult for them. They take it to the Court of Appeals, which, verse 8 clarifies, meets in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem at the temple. It consists of the high priest, as well as other Levitical priests, and a man who is called just the judge of that year. And the Old Testament goes on, it would sometimes be the king or an appointee of the king, and they decide the, the case. Now, notice this is not an appeals court for people who don't like the verdict. It's an appeals court for judges who are in over their heads. Who don't understand God's word well enough. They go to the priests and the high priest who presumably know it best. And could then, because they are in God's presence, could then consult God. And and as God dealt with Moses, God would deal with them and guide them. This is the section that applies. And they would come to a righteous and just decision. And that decision, verses 10 and 11, that decision is final. It's to be obeyed. It comes out from the presence of the Lord, and it is to be obeyed under penalty of death. 
notice that it's not that the death penalty was the penalty. The death penalty is a penalty for denying this court. This is, this is the final place. You have to rest here. This has come from the highest court meeting in the presence of the Lord, defying the high priest. Penalty of death. That's the system. That's the basic outline. And in the middle section, verses 21 to verse 7, provides this important case study. An example of how it might work. Now, because the middle section is is functioning as an example, I'm not going to go into as much detail in it, but it is worthy of a whole sermon itself. And if you want to think more about that middle section, I refer you to chapter 13. You can look it up online. The very same material is dealt with in chapter 13. If you want to think more about it, especially about what that last phrase, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, what that means and how it interacts with stoning people to death. Those are, those are big questions for us these days. And if you want to think more about that, I refer you to that sermon. But this is an important illustration. It uses it for a reason. I'm going to deal with it just a little bit this morning. This is not only a potential issue, it, it is the gravest of all possible issues. Because what's at stake here is God's relationship to his people. It, it is the covenant itself that's at stake. The very first commandment is the most important commandment, and what this is, is the breaking of that. So it begins with a few different examples of, of what that might look like, worshiping an idol or offering some half-hearted sacrifice to God. And if that happens, he says, what do you need to do? Investigate it. And here's how witnesses work. You need multiple witnesses. You need to examine them to make sure that they're telling the truth. So you examine this, and, and if you find this particular crime to have been committed, if the covenant has been broken, you can't let that stand. You have to execute the most serious of all penalties, the death penalty. And the witnesses are a part of it first. Their hands first participate, and then everybody else joins in as a purging of the evil from the midst of the community. Now again, we have to think through, and I refer you to the chapter 13 sermon, we have to realize that this is a civil penalty that we, the church, do not have today. So we're not talking about stoning anybody. There is a way, and we don't just skip it and throw it out. There is a way, and we'll come to it a little bit later, there is a way that we, the church, have to heed and listen to and follow this instruction. It is, it is of greatest importance when it, somebody within the covenant community says no to the first commandment. It is serious. There is a lot at stake here. The very life and integrity of the people of God is at stake. It must be responded to, not just overlooked and ignored. The New Testament tells us how to do that. and We'll, we'll come to that a little bit later. But what we see here is that he is extremely serious, that righteousness and justice, not just between people, but that righteousness between him and his people, be lived out among the people. And any discarding of that by an individual or the overlooking of it by the community brings serious trouble. So he commands them, purge the evil from your midst, 
I want righteousness and justice to mark this people. And here's the system by which that can happen. That's the passage. It's basically the setting up of a governmental arm of government, if you will. What are we to think about that? I'm going to unpack it with making two observations about what God is doing and how we are to respond to that and then tie it together into a a sentence at the end. I'm going to begin with my observations here. First one's about what God is doing. God is enacting his righteousness and justice among his people. What's going on in this passage? God is doing something. He is enacting his righteousness and justice among his people. Think of it like this, about God acting to press into his people by setting up a system, a structure, acting to press into his people his righteousness and justice. This is most clearly seen in those commandments. They're they're pretty simple commandments in 18 to 20. They're to judge with righteous judgment. They are not to pervert justice. Justice, justice you shall follow. Pretty clear what he's after. Pretty straightforward. But then he underlines that then by coming back at it in a different way at the end of verse 20 with a warning. The command is pretty clear, and then he issues a warning. He says at the end of 20, justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There's a condition there. You hear it. That, so that, do this, so that you may live and receive the land. We've seen this tension before in the book. He, he with one hand, is, is constantly talking about when you come into the land. He even does it in this passage in verse 18. When you come to these cities, you must in every gate set up these judges. You're going to come to the cities because I'm going to give them to you. But if you want to receive them, justice, justice must mark you seems to kind of fold back on himself. We might put it like this and say, he's going to give them the land, but if they want to generation upon generation receive it and retain it, live, they must be characterized by righteousness and justice. Put it another way. If they, if the people of God want to experience the blessing of God, not earn the blessing of God, experience the blessing of God. If we want to experience the blessing of God, there is a particular path we must walk. We cannot say, I'm going to do whatever it is I please, and God will be obligated to bless me all the same. That's not true. It's not true. His blessing lies along a path. Walk that path to experience it. If you walk away from that path, what you invite is His discipline. Which, to be honest, is also His blessing, but it's His blessing to bring you back onto the path. His blessing lies in a particular place. And he commands, if you want to experience the blessing, in in their context, the blessing of holding on to this land of prosperity, walk in righteousness and justice. 
It's what I'm like. It's what you must be like. Catch that. It's what he's like. It's all rooted in the character of God. We thought about this in the the context of the Ten Commandments. There are surely clear societal reasons to build a people around righteousness and justice. Just look, look at any nation or any city that does not have righteousness and justice, that's filled with corruption and bias and bribery rules today. It's a mess. Obviously, that, that happens. So there are clear societal reasons this is a good thing to do. But that's not why God commands it. The foundational reason why God commands righteousness and justice among His people is that He is righteousness and justice. The Bible is full of this. God is a God who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. The Bible repeatedly says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. In the words of Psalm 9, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice and He judges the world with righteousness. When it speaks about God's throne, the the seat upon which He rests to reign, what it's saying is that at the bottom level, that out of which everything comes is throne. Out of Him, at His root, is righteousness and justice. He is morally pure and holy, upright in all of His ways, always filled with integrity, always telling the truth, never able to be bribed or coerced, Whenever holds one over on Him. He is righteous. He is always right. He is just. He always does what is right. Which is what's going on in the case study. He brings up this case study... To illustrate the the whole system here, but he brings up this one because this is a unique issue Um, amongst the people of Israel. It's a unique issue for us. Think about this. God is is rather emphatic about this issue, this case study, isn't he? I mean, you have to kill people? He doesn't issue the death penalty for... Many, 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 many other things. Only a very select few. And this is at the pinnacle of that. It says that in verse 21 or 22, he hates idolatry. Twice he calls these sorts of things in the passage abominations. Calls it evil. Those are heavy words. This is a a really serious, heavy thing. Why? Why? Now, if, if I was the most powerful person here, suppose I was the physically, maybe economically most powerful person here, I might decide that I was going to make you worship me. And because I have the most power, I might be able to make that happen. 
So I might be able to pass a law and say, you will have to worship me. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Throw you in a fiery furnace, perhaps. I, I might be able to get away with that. But that would be wrong. Why is that wrong? Because I'm not worthy of worship. It is, it's pride. It's deep sin in me to force that upon you. It's wrong. But when God does it, it's right. He is not issuing this, this sort of a serious verdict or, or these serious commands, these, these heavy words, because he's the most powerful one and is on some sort of an ego trip. He has to have this strong of a reaction to idolatry because he is righteous and just. Of all beings, he is most aware of how evil it is to demote him. Of how much of an abomination it is to worship him in a half-hearted way with an animal that's blemished and not good for anything else. Might as well give it to God. He knows how serious it is to dethrone him. And because he is righteous and just, he has to be really concerned to re-enthrone himself in the hearts of individual people. It's an illustration of how he is so thoroughly righteous and just and how he requires us to be righteous and just. First, in relation to him, that we be sure to get him in the right place, and also then in relation to other people. There are other people in this text too. It is especially about God and His place. That's what the illustration is about. But if you talk about partiality and bribery, it implies there are two parties here. And one party is trying to influence us in one way against the other party. He's against that too. He is extremely concerned that we, the people of God, have Him in the right place and deal with other people rightly. In righteousness and in justice. And He is enacting a system, here in the text, to make sure that happens. He's trying to press it into His people. Now, when we move to the second observation, what we're going to look at is, what that looks like for us, but we have to stop here and ask, God is working to enact His righteousness and justice among us. Do you care? We have to stop there and ask that, because if you don't care, there's no point in continuing. Do you care? I think it's possible that in some of our minds... If you can remember last week's sermon, you're thinking, last week we were talking about God being concerned that we be filled with joy. I like that one. I want to be like that. I like a God like that, who's concerned that I be filled with joy, and here's all of this righteousness stuff. Is this the same Bible? Yeah, actually, the very next verse. It's the same God 
who is extremely concerned that you know full joy and that you be righteous and just in your dealing with Him and you're dealing with other people. Same God. Are you as concerned that you be righteous and just as you were concerned last week that you be joyful? Are you? He is. We cannot overlook this. The warning tells us so. The warning at the end of verse 20. Righteousness and justice must mark my people if they want to experience my blessing. Now for them, it's, it's the land that they're going into, that they can physically look across the river and see. We're not in that place. But nonetheless, the same principle applies to us. If we want to experience God's blessing, let's use the one from last week. If we want to know God's joy, we have to know God's righteousness and justice. In His presence there is fullness of joy, and in His presence there is fullness of righteousness and justice. They are in the same place. It is awkward to show up and say, I would like to have some of this, and you can keep that, please, to kind of push it off of your plate. He served up both. It is important for us, if we want to experience God's blessing, and it is important if we want to experience any kind of a community. Try living in a community that is not characterized by righteousness and justice. In other words, that is characterized by injustice and wickedness. It is not a pleasant place. We, we, can't, we can't be that. So the question to you, and, and I know that the first answer is, of course, but I'm, what's the second answer? The question to you, are you concerned that you individually be characterized by righteousness and justice. He wants to press that into your life. And are you concerned to be a part of a community? To do your part in the community so that it would be characterized by righteousness and justice. He wants that too. Is that a concern of yours? Obviously it should be. And if it is, the next observation is going to tell us a little bit about how to carry that out. Second observation moves towards how we are to respond. Obviously, he wants us to have that attitude, but it has to be more than the theory. It has to get into our lives. So here's, here's the second observation. Embrace God's provided means for enacting righteousness and justice. So he's trying to enact righteousness and justice. He provides means for that. We are to embrace those means. Which again, I think is rather obvious from the passage. He is not giving this to his people as a suggestion. If you're looking to set up a judiciary, here's a way it might be done. He, he said, this is how you do it. I'm going to tell you how to appoint the judges, and I'm going to tell you how to do this, and how to do that, and the other. How this is going to work. He's setting up a very concrete system there and is expecting them to willingly say, okay, there we go, and walk in that. But we need to think carefully about that as we move towards embracing the means that he has provided because, as I said earlier, we're in a different place now. 
We're not starting a nation. We're not setting up a judiciary branch. The covenant community is different here. We aren't in the civil law business anymore, but we are in the moral law business. And when we look at this, what we learn from this is he has a system for pushing into society righteousness and justice, which are clearly moral issues. He has a system for doing that. Is he going to give us, the new covenant community, some system or some structure for pressing into us, for helping us to be at least on the outside, maybe even on the inside, but in some way shaped by... Is he going to give us something that's going to involve godly, wise leadership? Sitting before the Word of God to discern what does this situation connect to in the Word of God? That will gather together in the presence of God and trust Him for wisdom. Is He going to give us a system like that? That will have as its goal the integrity of God amongst the people and the integrity of the community. And is willing and at the very end, if necessary, if necessary, to send someone out of the community for the sake of righteousness and justice within. Is He going to give us a system like that? And He did. Turn to 1 Corinthians. And as you're turning there, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a, an immature church in the city of Corinth to help it deal with a whole bunch of sin problems. We've already been twice now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going there again today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then on into chapter 6. Paul's writing to this Corinthian church with Deuteronomy on the brain. We've seen chapter 5 connect to Deuteronomy 13, and as well as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover. Alludes to that also in chapter 5. So he's doing something that's very helpful for us. He's taking this Old Testament law and telling us in the New Testament how to apply it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, he's going to help us understand some of the means that God has given us to press into us righteousness and justice. I'm going to put two names on them. They're not, not original to me, but he's going to talk about church discipline and church mediation. So you can jot those down. Discipline first. You can actually you can also jot down Matthew 18 if you want to look at more of that. Matthew 18 is going to spell out a little more of the process that's behind church discipline, and there are other places too. But it's important that I clarify: it is a process, sometimes a lengthy process, and all that we're seeing here this morning in First Corinthians is the last piece of it. So don't presume that when I talk about church discipline that I think we immediately hop to this final step. But it's the final step that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5 that reveals to us he's got Deuteronomy on the brain. He tells us, chapter 5, verse 3, he talks about pronouncing judgment. So that we have some, some similar language. He's talking about passing a verdict within the community. 
He's not talking about those outside of the church. He's talking about within the church, within those who claim to be Christians. Paul has passed a verdict and is urging them to do likewise. And he tells them what that should be. This person, who's under discussion there, who is in blatant, open, unrepentant sin, and is claiming that there's no problem whatsoever with walking in that way and claiming to be a Christian. Paul says... Verse 9, do not associate with that one. Verse 11 again, do not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother and has no problem with open, blatant, unrepentant sin. At the end of the day, this person who is inside the community by self-professions, I'm in, they say, then the church is to set them out. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Last sentence, that's the connection to Deuteronomy. Same phrase that's used twice in our passage, several times in chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, many other places in the book of Deuteronomy. Paul is telling us that what God said in the Old Testament about this, this process that ends in this final step of, under the civil law, executing someone, that's not what we do now. We do remove them, but we remove them by the process of church discipline, setting them apart, not associating with them. That is how we remove the evil from the midst, so as to maintain righteousness and justice in the community. It's the end of a process. It's not the first thing you do. It's the last thing you do, but it is something that you do. He set up civil law for Israel, not for us. But we do have to apply that and be willing to, in a system, press righteousness into the church. It's godly leadership gathered in God's presence, discerning the facts of a case in relation to God's word, and in the final step, acting to set someone aside. It's a serious thing, church discipline. And now chapter 6, church mediation. Which is concerned with a different situation entirely. Deuteronomy 16, as I said, is, is about the relationship of people to God, but it's also about people to people. Bribery and partiality imply two parties, as I said. So how do you handle it when there isn't really blatant sin at issue? There's a dispute with two parties kind of in conflict with one another. What do you do? Well... He tells them, you take it to the church. Chapter 6, verse 4, you put it before people who have standing in the church, likely meaning elders. His clear, his clear attitude throughout the passage is, we're Christians. We have the mind of Christ. We have the word of Christ. We have the spirit of Christ. And we are being prepared to do a far more complicated judgment We can handle this. We should handle this. This should not go into the civil courts. Disputes between Christians should be resolved in the church, church mediation. Church mediation, church discipline, two systems that God has provided for us. And when we carry them out, when we, in our body, 
work in the, set up those systems and work in those systems, they can help us to see righteousness and judgment pressed in. So we need to say that. They, they have clear parallels to what's going on in Deuteronomy. Paul points that out. But I also need to, with my remaining time, I mean, I could say a whole lot more about that. I will in the future preach on church discipline as, as a sermon itself. There are lots of things about church mediation that could be said. But in the remaining moments, I need to say something else that's actually far more important. Because, just think about this. Here's a system. And woe to us if our hope is in any system. Because it won't work. If we say, oh, you know the thing that is, that's really good about the new covenant is that we have a new and better system. We're fooling ourselves. No, no structure of church discipline or church mediation or, or anything else. No, no setup of people seated and speaking a word of authority to any other Christian, nothing like that is actually going to produce righteousness and justice in the place where it most matters. Not going to happen. Which is not to throw out the systems. Anybody who's ever been a parent realizes that you, you don't say, okay, my rules for my kids are not changing their heart, therefore let's get rid of all the rules. You, you don't do that. The rules give you a chance to perhaps get at the real issue. But we need to keep our eyes centered on what the real issue is. It's in the heart. When God means to press into His people righteousness and justice, He means to press it into the heart, not on the outside only. What's on the outside too, but it's got to be in the heart first. And the thing that is better about the new covenant is that we have a new and better priest and judge. Not a new and better system. We have a new priest and judge who renders a verdict in the heart. Who by his spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Not just in the public sphere, but in here. By grace, He convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then by grace, points us to the place where the the verdict rendered and the penalty paid is finished. He does that in your heart, Christian. And then what's the next step? What does he do then? Do you know? And I don't mean just intellectually. Do you know experientially? When all by yourself this judge breaks you in guilt, and then I I pray, moves you in mercy to see the cross, what happens next in your heart? Do you know experientially? How do you think? How do you feel after that? All I can say here is how you 
are supposed to feel and how you are supposed to think. You are not supposed to think, got away with that one. Probably you don't think like that. But you're not supposed to. And you're not supposed to think, ah, I, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suck it up and not do that again. What you're supposed to think and what you're supposed to feel is, what an awesome God. What an awesome God. I'm guilty of sin. I'm guilty in sin. And he's got me dead to rights. There it is, right on the page, I'm guilty. And if I were to put this in front of any system or any court, they would say, guilty. I'm even guilty, worthy of the death penalty. Because while I haven't planted any Asherah poles recently, I certainly have worshipped other gods before him. And he is vehemently opposed to that. And he has crucified his son for it. What an awesome God. That's how you're supposed to feel. That's how you're supposed to think. It's the gospel at work to wash your mind. And what rises up in that? A love for him, this awesome God. A love of righteousness and justice. So you come at righteousness and justice not by force, but by lure. The system, the structure can help give us the, the force that we need. That's helpful. But it won't ever get you there. It's the lure that gets you there. You will chase beauty. And there is only one beautiful. And he, he shows you that. He tells you that. By showing you your guilt and then showing you the cross and assuring you that you stand forgiven. And now walk with me down the path of blessing. There is more blessing to be had tomorrow down this path. Am I not a God who blesses? I'll do it tomorrow too. Come on, let's go this way. And you say, sure. Now, I speak individually there. I'm talking about you. It is not a, a private individual issue. I mean, it is, first. It's you and God dealing in, in your closet, in your basement somewhere. You and God dealing. But it's also a community thing. That we help one another. We remind, we, we preach the gospel to each other. We remind one another, this is who God is. This is the way, this is the path of blessing. Let's walk this together. We don't want anything to do with that. It's a lie. And it leads to death. We remind one another of that in moments of weakness. We don't abandon the systems. We embrace them, but we take care. Here's my main point, if it matters to you. To embrace all the means that God has provided for righteousness and justice, including and especially Christ. Let me pray. Father, I, I plead with you that you would do a work in us 
that would be two-pronged, that would cause us to see the value of the systems that you've given us and to not shun them, but to not be so foolish as to rely on them and to press on and grab a hold of you. To be a people who majors on the gospel. Lord, I'm, I'm mindful that even in the midst of the section about church discipline, Paul reminds us that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And that's why we throw off the unleavened bread. We throw off the leavened bread. Lord, would you remind us of that? Would you drive away leaven from us by reminding us of the cross? Would you end disputes, even as that passage in 1 Corinthians 6 ends, would you end disputes by reminding us and causing us to hope in you who judges justly? So we need not get justice here ourselves. Lord, do this work in us. Do a gospel transformation in us, I I pray, I plead with you. Make us to be a people who who are, in relation to you and to one another, righteous and just in every way, in all that we do, and so, therefore, know full joy. I pray, Lord, do that kind of work in us. Press it into us for your glory among your people and for our good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.